Are you ready for my Van Halen scream? Let's see if oh I can God, do this. Oh, God, are you going to scream? <laughs> that was my Van Halen scream. I mean, that was pretty good, pretty uh, accurate. Oh, good. We were just listening to <laughs> Yes! <laughs> Hello! And welcome to yet another frisky and fun-filled episode of Heavy Please Metal. Please don't ever call me frisky. <laughs> Featuring my frisky co-host, John. So, who is ready for some virtuosic, brilliant, good time party rock? John, are you ready for some virtuosic, brilliant, good time party rock? So ready. Oh, you look ready. You just ate a donut. I did. You, like, percolating with energy. Got coffee. I'm ready to go. Oh, let's do this thing. For us academes, it's currently winter break. Joy! I have spent this delightful time in a self-induced coma of heavy metal and horror movies. What about you, John? Uh, I went to Alaska. And didn't do anything. <laughs> Lovely. So I assume, as per the film 30 Days of Night, you mm -hmm. spent most of your time in Alaska surrounded by a vampire infestation. Yeah, that's basically why I didn't do anything. That's very wise. Well, between the vampires and the plague, mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's a difficult time to be in Alaska, right? Yeah, it was just, you know, sort of cold and dark. Great. Right. Today, we are going to discuss what I believe to be the single most important heavy metal album of the entire 1970s, not by a band named Black Sabbath. That being the majestic, game-changing, self-titled 1978 debut of Van Halen. John, you liked this album, didn't you? I did, yeah. This one was enjoyable. Yay! See, I knew we would get there eventually. It took a little bit of time. I mean, I liked the Judas Priest album. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So this is two now. That's we're two. two for six or something like that. Yeah. I don't know where we're at. But, 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 okay, we're getting there. I had a feeling you would like this album. I was actually pretty shocked when we discussed it originally and you told me you hadn't heard this album. I sort of thought that listening to the first Van Halen album is a rite of passage, but maybe that's for uh, old folks like me. Uh, that, that may be the case. I mean, I had heard songs from this album before, but I had not listened to the whole thing. Well, I'm glad we were able to change all that. To my mind, it's simply a mind-blowing musical experience, and this is one that miraculously was ahead of its time in 1978. By any reasonable standard, this is really, really great music making, but when one considers that this album was released in the year of 1978, recorded in the year of 1977, it's truly awe-inspiring. Actually, I think of Van Halen's debut album much like I think of Debussy's early masterpiece, Prelude à l'après-midi d'enfant. You were expecting this comparison, I assume, right? No, this was I, was, I was not, but go on. This is low-hanging I'm, I'm fruit. riveted. Uh-huh. So that's a piece of orchestral music from 1894 that is clearly a 20th century concert work, right, in terms of its sure. aesthetic and yeah. language. It's a, you know, modernist, early, early 20th century modernism. That is a 20th century piece that was released to the world before the 20th century in the same way that Van Halen's debut album is this masterpiece of 1980s heavy metal that just happened to come out in 1978. They are ahead of their time geniuses. That would be Claude Debussy and Edward Van Halen. Would you agree that prescient modernity is a hallmark of true genius? I'm hung up on the fact that we're talking about a guy named Claude and a guy named Edward. Mm -hmm. I feel particularly comfortable making classical music allusions when I talk about Van Halen, as this was the band, and most particularly, this was the first true heavy metal guitar god, the aforementioned Edward Van Halen, who really brought to bear the sort of overwhelming technical virtuosity that's traditionally associated with classical music. He brought that to popular music, hard rock, and most particularly to heavy metal. 
He is our heavy metal Paganini, just even cooler. And Paganini was actually pretty cool. We'll talk about that another time. So Van Halen is going to really do two very important things for the future of heavy metal via this debut release. Number one, Van Halen are going to establish top-notch musical virtuosity on all instruments, really, but most particularly from the guitar, as a foundational trait of so much of the heavy metal that will follow. This marks a significant change, as most 70s heavy metal was considered to be musically rather primitive. I don't think that necessarily is a fair characterization. I think bands like Black Sabbath played a lot better than people give them credit for, but it certainly was the predominant understanding of heavy metal prior to Van Halen. Number two, Van Halen are going to establish the look, the sound, and the general characteristics that will be adopted pretty much by all of the glam and pop metal bands that would follow in their wake. When we talked about lighter metal, sort of category one bands on our last episode, that would be the brilliant, insightful episode, That's Not Heavy Metal, which I think you'll agree everyone should go back and listen to. Definitely worth revisiting. Oof, so good, so good. When we were talking about that category, we were really talking about a huge swath of bands in the 1980s that were profoundly influenced by Aerosmith to some degree, who we talked about in that episode, and also even more so by Van Halen. And I consider Van Halen to be the founding fathers of the glam and pop metal branch, particularly the glam metal branch, as they really founded the Los Angeles Sunset Strip scene, which didn't really exist, at least in hard rock, until Van Halen came around, and established the last of our three major heavy metal branches in doing so. <laughs> so basically, this is a band that simultaneously establishes the importance of instrumental virtuosity to heavy metal, and also the band that did the most to start the process of opening up the cloistered and very male-dominated fandom of heavy metal to a larger and particularly a more gender-diverse audience. David Lee Roth was a really good-looking guy, a very flamboyant frontman, and people of all genders finally embraced heavy metal with the advent of Van Halen. And this all starts with the 1978 masterpiece that we're gonna talk about now. So, in many respects, it feels as if Van Halen's first album just came out of nowhere, like a majestic karate-kicking thunderbolt from the sky. But of course, that's not the case. So let's chat a little bit about the origin story of these musical masters from Pasadena. John, what do you come into this episode knowing about Van Halen? My formal knowledge of Van Halen mm -hmm comes from an episode of the Judge John Hodgman podcast wherein there was an argument as to whether or not their band's bass player was actually any good. Ooh, uh-huh. Particularly referring to the first track on this album, uh -huh. the contention by one of the people on the show was that the uh, bass line sucks. <laughs> and it's stupid and he's not a very good bass player. Wow. Because it's a simple bass line. Very simple. Uh, the counter-argument was... Playing something simple well does not make you a shitty bassist. Mm -hmm. It was, in fact, the perfect bass line for the song. And when whoever their new bassist now, who I think is somebody's son, maybe? I yes, it's Wolfgang Van Halen. That is a terrible name. I'm so sorry for that child. But apparently <laughs> when he plays this song, uh, he, he elaborates the bass line much more. And uh, ultimately, that's bad. I remember us discussing that before we did the podcast, and I, I almost felt like it was a test when you, you presented that same question to me, and I felt like I acquitted myself well enough with my answer, which was very similar to what you just said, that he just lays down the perfect foundational baseline upon which the other members can elaborate that, that makes Michael Anthony, the, the, the classic bassist of Van Halen, so great. I mean, as a bass player myself, 
we're not there to do a lot. Mm -hmm. Just stay out of the way. Yeah, just, just you know, here's the harmony, here's the rhythm, we're good. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I, I, we'll talk about this more later, but it's also really important to note that aside from being just a absolute rock-solid bassist, Michael Anthony also provided the high vocal harmonies in all of Van Halen's harmonized vocal parts, and that's one of the really distinctive characteristics about their sound. So, Michael Anthony... Fabulous, fabulous member of Van Halen. That that guy who said that the bass line was stupid and that he was bad. That guy's a dummy. Big yeah, guy. I think that's fair. And that is the extent of my knowledge about Van Halen. Okay, well, this story, as all good stories, begins with two little Dutch boys. That would be Alex, born 1953, and Eddie, born 1955, Van Halen. These two young fellows were born in Amsterdam to a Dutch father musician Jan van Halen, and his Indonesian-born wife, Eugenia van Beers. Are you surprised by this? I, you look surprised. All of this is fascinating. I know. The backstory of van Halen is all kinds of fascinating. So this is an immigrant story. These are two boys who are born in Amsterdam in the 1950s and relocate to sunny Pasadena, California in 1962. They take a boat to California in order to pay for their fare. Their father, who's a clarinetist, actually plays in the band on the ship. So that's how he pays their fares. And these two young boys arrive in sunny California knowing not a word of English. Yeah, I just want to back up one mm -hmm. second. They take a boat yeah. to California. From Amsterdam. From Amsterdam. So they had to go around... The Southern? I'm not, I'm not really sure how that worked. I think they arrived probably in New York and then made their way back. That makes more hunt. sense. Yeah, okay. I feel good about that. All right. Okay. <laughs> so, really what we have here is the start of one of those heartwarming immigrant stories that actually make America seem like a pretty decent place. Coming from nothing, poor little Dutch boys who go on to be, you know, some of the most famous rock stars in the history of the world. It's great. A tale as old as time. A tale as old as time. The yes. Dutch metal masters. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Yes, indeed. So musically, the Van Halen boys both started out at the piano. Their father was a musician and very much wanted them to learn classical piano. Not too far into their piano-playing youths, they began to develop more of an interest in popular music. And actually, Eddie started off playing the drums, and Alex started off on the guitar. And so the legend has it, and this is from the mouths of the Van Halen brothers, that Eddie had a paper route. He was working a paper route in order to pay off his drum kit. And while he would be out working, what he described as the only real job he ever had, Alex actually started banging away on the drums and fell in love with them. And at some point, nobody's quite sure when, they just threw up their hands and decided to switch instruments. Alex became a drummer. And Eddie, of course, became the guitarist par excellence. So, in my opinion, this was clearly all part of Odin's master plan to allow for them to eventually produce some of the greatest dang rock music of all time. Thank you, Odin. To be clear, Van Halen, for its entire existence as a band, consisted of Eddie Van Halen on the guitar and Alex Van Halen on the drums. And both of these dudes, these Dutch brothers, are insanely amazing at their respective instruments. Eddie has always been particularly lauded, quite justifiably, as perhaps the greatest rock guitarist of all time, but Alex is an incredible, incredible drummer as well. So what do you think, John? You've heard the first Van Halen album at this point, and based on what you've heard, do you think it's reasonable to consider Eddie Van Halen as amongst the greatest rock guitarists of all time? 
I mean, who else is on the short list? I mean, yeah. well, obviously Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix Stevie is on Ray the Vaughan. short list. He'd probably be on, he'd be on a lot of people's short list. Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton. These are, these are other people that people play mention. Guitar. Yeah, who play guitar. <laughs> uh, um, I, but I mean, to my mind, it's really Hendrix and Van Halen, I think, as the classic. Obviously, there's a lot of contemporary people, people maybe you haven't even heard, people like Randy Rhodes, not, not contemporary from, from the 1980s. Randy Rhodes will come up as one of the great guitarists. Ingwie Malmsteen. But these are, these are Steve Vai. Do you know who any of those people are? Uh, the last one I know. Okay, yeah, these are all like pyrotechnic shredders. Anyway, I, I think... I personally think that Eddie Van Halen, along with Jimi Hendrix, are the two greatest rock guitarists of all time. And Eddie's my favorite. And I love Jimi Hendrix. I absolutely adore Jimi Hendrix, both as a guitar player and as a songwriter. One of my favorites. But Eddie is nearest and dearest to my heart. And just his style, his approach, in combination with his technical facility and innovation, both on the instrument and also technologically with the instrument. I mean, he really did a lot of things in terms of designing his own guitars and sort of jerry-rigging amplifiers and things that really revolutionized the instrument, which we hear on this album. So I'm a believer that Jimi Hendrix and Eddie Van Halen are the alpha and omega of rock guitar, and they are certainly the most influential players in the sort of modern history of the instrument. There were certainly many other brilliant virtuosi and innovators that followed in their footsteps, a lot of the people that we just mentioned, but Jimmy and Eddie are the dudes who made all of what was to come possible. So Eddie Van Halen is also, and I say this with no reservations, my very personal favorite rock guitarist of all time. I adore his rhythm and lead playing, both of which exude an easy charisma and joie de vivre like no other musician I can really think of. I was thinking about this. The musician that, to me, most resembles Eddie Van Halen, and you're going to be probably surprised by this, Franz Josef Haydn. Haydn has that same sort of easy charisma, and that, that just, it just makes your heart smile, you know, in a way, in a way that uh, few brilliant musicians do. You see what I'm saying there? A kid, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like the cello concertos. I mean, that's just joy. It's just pure joy distilled in musical form, much like, you know, Eddie Van Halen's playing on uh, I'm the One or something. It's just, it's just so happy. Okay, so we've met the Van Halen brothers, but the band Van Halen would not be complete without the rock-solid bass groove and fantastic soaring high backing vocals of Michael Anthony who was born in the year 1954 in Chicago, but whose family relocated to Arcadia, California, which is right next door to Pasadena, in 1966. Last but not least, we have quite possibly the greatest frontman of them all, <laughs> Diamond Dave. David Lee Roth, who was born in Bloomington, Indiana in 1954, but thanks to Odin, whose family relocated to good old Pasadena when Roth was a teenager. So like Voltron, these mighty forces joined together to form a sum greater than its very exceptionally great parts. And by 1974, this original classic lineup of Van Halen, as we just listed, was together and beginning their quest for world domination. You want to hear a fun story? Of course. All right. So in the very early days... Eddie Van Halen was actually both singer and guitarist for Proto Van Halen. He's a very nice voice. 
And at the time, they were actually leasing their PA system from David Lee Roth, who was in a competing band on the Pasadena circuit. The Van Halen brothers weren't actually all that impressed by the young Roth's vocal abilities, but they actually decided to take him on as a vocalist in order to save themselves the cost of the PA rental. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah. So there you go. David Lee Roth and Van Halen came together as a money-saving operation. Now this is starting to sound like an American story. Right? Continue. Ah, it's all making sense. So gradually, Van Halen became a huge deal on the SoCal high school and college party circuit. And eventually, and this is important, they became regulars on Hollywood's Sunset Strip. Now, the L.A. rock scene was actually really dormant at that time, and it was Van Halen who kick-started the scene that was going to bring forth such a huge assortment of bands just a few years later as 80s glam metal would take off with the Sunset Strip as its spiritual mecca. Now, in 1976, Gene Simmons, remember Gene Simmons of KISS, he saw them play, and immediately took them into a recording studio in order to record what is now the legendary Zero demo. This demo is absolutely fantastic. I don't know why it hasn't been commercially released, but it's you can listen to the whole thing on YouTube. It's just ridiculously great. It's all you know recorded live and relatively lo-fi, and the band just sounds amazing. I mean, they really do sound just as just as great as they sound on their debut album two years later. I strongly advocate perusing it on YouTube if you get the chance. It is great stuff. But even though Gene Simmons produced this great demo and made every effort to get Kiss's management to take on Van Halen, they actually shot him down, saying of the band, quote, they had no chance of making it. Oops. Uh, I believe this is a good time to note that Van Halen went on to sell over 80 million albums worldwide and also to observe that, like most people, Record execs and band management types are very, very stupid. They're dumb. But one rainy night in 1977 at what is apparently a very sparsely attended gig in Los Angeles, legend has it there were like three people in the audience, producer Ted Templeman and an executive from Warner Brothers were absolutely blown away by Van Halen, and they were offered a record deal, apparently via a letter of intent written on a cocktail napkin that very night. Which brings us to the self-titled debut album in question. <laughs> so we're going to pause and hear some music. I had an agonizingly difficult time narrowing down what track we were going to play, and I seriously considered doing like a Death-like episode where we listened to three tracks just because I wanted to. But no, we're going to listen to one, one song, even though every song on this album is a goddamn peach. And so I finally settled... I'm probably my personal favorite song, maybe, on this amazing album, and that is the end of side one of the original LP, the fantastic I'm the One. So this is our one chance. Let's take a listen. Let's do it! Okay, so if you are listening to my voice now, you are listening to the version of this podcast in which we do not have the rights to play this incredible track, I'm the One, from the eponymous Van Halen masterpiece, the first album. What you need to do is either seek it out yourself, that's totally fine, but pause the podcast, listen to a recording, there'll be a link in the show notes, which you can just click right away, and make sure that you get to hear this incredible bit of music making, which will illuminate the brilliant and insightful conversation we are about to have about this track. All right, get to listening, 
and resume the podcast later. Freaking incredible! Oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my. I am just going to be honest about this. To me, this is quite possibly the best hard rock slash heavy metal album of the entire decade. Um, and it's such a diverse album. It captures a, such an amazing assortment of different styles and moods and music making. And any effort to capture all of that in just one song is pretty much impossible. However, if any one song encompasses kind of most of this delirious assortment of moods and styles found on this masterpiece, it's probably I'm the one. So, John, the opening line of this song is, We came here to entertain you. This is Van Halen in a nutshell, I think. Were you entertained? I was entertained. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm not, I'm not going to put on a show. I enjoyed this album. Ah, that makes me so happy. And what do you think about this particular song? Yeah, I mean, great. Great playing. Fun. Was it fun? Yes. There is a level of musicianship here that is much more easy for me to appreciate mm -hmm. than some of the other music that we've listened to. I mean, one of the things that's so amazing and great about Van Halen, and it's so well encapsulated in this song, is the fact that they have, frankly, the same or higher levels of musicianship than any of the great sort of prog rock bands. You know, you think of bands like Rush or somebody like that, that's clearly noted for their musicianship. And I am not a big Rush fan, but I certainly respect, you know, they're obviously amazing players. Van Halen are, are absolutely at the same level. They might, and again, I think in some respects, they're probably at a higher level, but they're so damn much fun. They don't take themselves too seriously. They're a joy to listen to. I mean, it's something that pr there's pretty much something for everyone in this music, and I, I think that's just awesome. So I actually read a comment somewhere in a comment section online about this song. It described the experience of listening to it as feeling as if you were on a train, and it's just speeding too fast down the tracks, and you just assume it's going to careen off the tracks, derailing at any moment. But somehow, it makes every twist, every turn, it never does. That, to me, is illustrative of what makes Van Halen so magical. In a song like this, there's this feeling of almost musical danger, like they can't possibly stick the landing, and yet they always do. It's the drumming, it's the urgency of the guitar playing, it's the excitement of David Lee Roth's crazy-ass vocals, and I, I, all of that, I think, is sort of grounded, as we talked about, by this rock-solid bass playing of Michael Anthony. All of this starts, of course, with the extraordinary Eddie Van Halen, whose opening riff is just insanely great and immediately shows off that fantastic, just hyper-overdriven guitar tone that helps to make this first Van Halen album sound so very ahead of its time. It's just a very modern guitar sound. It doesn't, to me at least, sound at all dated. It certainly doesn't sound like 70s rock. No. It's very different. Yeah. Of course, Alex absolutely is also on fire name of another great song on this album that i thought about playing but didn't he's on fire throughout this song on the drums the two of them are just absolutely next level i mean to me it's that sort of brother music making thing where they have this just incredible simpatico they're just so hyper so all over the place so many fills in the drums so many fills in the guitar and all of this makes it very easy to overlook the just laser tight lightning quick shuffle 
of Michael Anthony's bass, which somehow manages to hold the center throughout. I don't think I would call him the calm in the midst of the storm. The playing is actually like pretty crazy and wild, but it's very precise and it leaves the Van Halen brothers just plenty of room to skitter about and make a ton of joyful noise while Anthony sort of steers the ship and makes sure that we're all, we're all hanging on tight. Okay, so before we mention Diamond Dave on this track, we do need to pay tribute to Eddie's lead fills. Electric guitar can have fills much in the same way drums have fills. We've previously established that one of the principal heavy metal paradigms, after Judas Priest certainly, is the two lead guitarist attack, dueling leads. But Eddie, with the help of his magnificent rhythm section of Alex and Michael, manages to seamlessly integrate richly complex rhythm and lead playing by just one player. Really very, very little overdubbing. In fact, most of this album was just basically recorded live with David Lee Roth just in the sound booth doing his tracks. He switches just effortlessly from one to the other, uh, just on a dime, in a way that I find tremendously invigorating. You know, fast, frantic rhythm, and then suddenly he's playing lead, and then he's back. It's just, it's, it's got an electricity that you kind of can't replicate with two guitarists. But you gotta be one really good guitarist to make it work. So when David Lee Roth enters, the instrumental chaos is sort of slightly sublimated underneath his lead vocal. Really, everyone else is still going pretty wild, but all of it gets even better as we then get the patented Van Halen vocal harmonies coming in on the lyric, I'm the one, the one you love, particularly featuring those soaring high harmonies by Michael Anthony that give Van Halen really one of its most distinctive characteristic sounds. I don't want to totally play-by-play -play this tune. I mean, I kind of want to, but I think that gets kind of boring. We're not going to do that. Quickly. We're not going to do that to anyone. We haven't even addressed probably the most signature guitar innovation of this album, that being two-handed tapping. Are you familiar with this technique? I am. Yeah, so two-handed tapping, which is really something that relies a lot on this overdriven guitar tone. It's the idea of using the left and the right hand up on the fingerboard in order to create this sort of almost pianistic virtuosity with hammer-on and pull-offs and no picking. Eddie Van Halen did not really invent this technique, but he is so innovative and virtuosic in his use of it that he's, he's the most important person to develop this technique. In fact, when Van Halen used to play live before they were signed, David Lee Roth would have Eddie Van Halen face away from the audience when he tapped so that no, no one in the audience would know what he was doing. So it was, it was that innovative. I, it, there are a few examples of it in the history of guitar before that, but Eddie Van Halen really is the, the person who brings this technique to the fore of rock guitar playing. I do want to mention one of the things that I think is particularly neat about the song I'm the One, which is that it sounds preposterously modern while simultaneously borrowing idioms from throughout the history of popular music. Now, John, do you have any idea what we might call a musical style that is simultaneously highly modern and freely incorporates historical elements and, at the same time, has a bit of a sense of humor to it? No, Eric. What would you call it? I'm so glad you asked. I would call it postmodernism. Yes, that's right. Van Halen is the first postmodern heavy metal band. Holy crap! I obviously have thought about this a lot. I really think that Van Halen 
their incorporation of elements. You know, you have this scat style singing, which sounds like, you know, nightclub 1930s. You have wicked fast interplay of different musical styles. You have, again, this sort of high modernity of rock music, not, you know, classical music, but rock music. All these elements simultaneously, to me, I think it's a bit postmodern. This piece brings in the elements of the shuffle, sort of the 12-bar blues style, while at the same time doing it at such a blistering pace that it sounds wholly modernistic, while David Lee Roth is just doing his updated version of the old-timey showman shtick. One of the centerpieces of this tune is that harmonized vocal breakdown towards the end. What did you think about that part? It's just Fine. It was probably my least favorite part of this oh, song. Oh no! To be honest. You don't like ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-
To, to my mind, this is well-deserved. This album was recorded over just three weeks at Sunset Sound Recorders in Hollywood, California in October of 1977. It was actually mostly recorded live with just a few guitar overdubs. Wow. That is indicative of a good, good band. And as mentioned previously, it was produced by Ted Templeman, who actually produced all of the Van Halen albums through the great 1984, though he actually would leave along with David Lee Roth as part of the eventual divorce when Roth left the band in 1985 and started his solo career. And the first single from this album was actually the cover, or one of the two covers. That is the third track, which is a delightful take on the classic Kinks song, you really got me. What did you, what did you think of that one? Uh, I enjoyed Van Halen's version more. Oh, it's good, right? Yeah. It's very, yeah, it's a great cover. I mean, the King's version is great, too. I love sure, the King's. but I, I like this version. Yeah, I think it's it, it's just a better, just a straight-ahead better version. I completely agree. This was followed as a single by the opening track, Running With The Devil. Both of those songs charted in the Billboard Top 100 in 1978 at 36 and 84, respectively. So not massive singles, but, you know, they performed. So, how did the critics respond to this unimpeachably brilliant masterpiece, you ask? Well, it's time for one of our favorite segments here at Heavy Metal 101, where we look at how wrong the legendary <laughs> critics at Rolling Stone magazine got things. John, are no, you I, ready for I'm, some Rolling Stone stupidity? I'm, I'm genuinely excited. Yeah, I thought you'd be excited about this. It's been far too long yeah, since we've yeah. insulted the Rolling Stone critics. <laughs> The first sentence of critic Charles M. Young's 1978 review is kind of sort of a particularly mean-spirited, backhanded compliment. Quote, Mark my words, in three years, Van Halen is going to be fat and self-indulgent and disgusting, and they'll follow Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin right into the toilet. Um, <laughs> so, so, I mean... What? <laughs> what? I'm thinking, wait... Uh -huh. Why is the first claim that they're going to be fat? What right? the hell does that have to do with music? So, like all of these damn Rolling Stone reviews, the dude obviously has an agenda, right? He's, like, so busy, worried about sounding smart and contextualizing things and making broader points that I, I don't even know if he listened to the damn album. I will say that even though he's being a dick, he is obviously comparing Van Halen in that opening sentence to Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin, which it seems to imply that they're important. Well, now, I don't have the historical frame of reference here. Did this person also think that Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin were trash? This embodies a little bit what we talked about in that Motorhead episode, where the prevailing view on hard rock and heavy metal in the late 70s was that it was over, that these bands were, like, out of touch, that they were dinosaurs. So that's kind of what he's implying. He's being just a total jerk about it. He goes on to say... Quote, Van Halen's secret is not doing anything that's original while having the hormones to do it better than all those bands who have become fat and self-indulgent and disgusting. So he's really sticking with his fat, self-indulgent, and disgusting motif. So aside from his obvious agenda, he's, he's, he's completely missing out on the fact that this is this insanely innovative, dare I say, postmodern rock hard rock or heavy metal album that's got this incredible virtuosity, this incredible fun, this whole new approach to making music because he's too busy rapturously gazing at his own goddamn navel. Does that seem like a reasonable characterization? I think that's even a generous characterization. <laughs> he ends the review by saying, quote, these guys also have the good sense not to cut their hair or sing about destroying a hopelessly corrupt society on their first album. That way, 
hopelessly corrupt radio programmers will play their music. What the fuck is he talking about? I mean, again, I was not alive during this, so I, I lack a certain historical context to really put this in a frame of reference, mm -hmm. but this is a very confusing review. So in my opinion, he, he sets out with an agenda in this review, and damn it all if he's going to actually let the music get in the way of that agenda. Any further thoughts on that brilliant and insightful take on Van Halen from 1978? I'm all for a negative review. I feel that far too frequently now reviews are just sort of nice things about something and more synopses than actual any sort of commentary. Mm -hmm. But you can't just be an asshole. Like it's you you got to make asshole. reasonable points. They're such assholes. I mean, that's the thing. They're just such jerks. It's an okay review, I guess. He isn't panning the album. He, to me, he's just talking over the album. He's missing everything of actual value that can be found within this music. Now, retrospective reviews, as is often the case, do tend to get it right. Here's a nice quote from one of my favorite sources, All Music. Stephen Thomas Erlewine says, quote, The still amazing thing about Van Halen, the album, is how it sounds like it has no fathers. Like all great originals, Van Halen doesn't seem to belong to the past, and it still sounds like little else, despite generations of copycats. I think that's pretty accurate. It really, this album just comes out of nowhere. You know, we talked about Aerosmith, another real founding father of light metal. They're a band that clearly comes out of the Rolling Stones, right? That clearly comes out of blues rock and all that. Van Halen just, it just doesn't sound like anything else. I mean, especially again with the historical context. A crap ton of music after this attempts to sound like it. But in 1978, this, I, I just can't imagine, you know, I was two, but I can't imagine what it was like to hear this material for the first time. It seems like it must have been pretty mind-melting. So this album consists of 11 kick-ass tracks. There are nine originals, all of which are credited to the entire band. And then there's the two covers, You Really Got Me, which we've mentioned, uh, by the Kinks, and the delightfully goofy blues tune, Ice Cream Man, which was originally written and recorded by John Brim in 1953 for the legendary Chicago electric blues label Chess Records. Fun anecdote, apparently Brim used the royalties from the Van Halen version to open a nightclub in Chicago. I think he was in, like, a laundry before that. He was a launderer? Yeah, I think he was a launderer before wow. that. Yeah, so I think that's nice. It's a fun shift. Yeah, Van Halen giving back to the community. <laughs> so the first and third tracks on the album were singles. We, we have to mention that the second track on this album is Eruption. It is probably the most famous guitar solo track in all of hard rock or heavy metal history. I really wanted to play it on this episode, but actually I decided I'm going to reserve that one for our next episode when we discuss the, the foundational influence of classical music on heavy metal. So Eruption is going to come back. So keep that one in your back pocket. Oh, great. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Now... Every track on this album is a gem, and each is worthy of extensive discussion. We're not going to do that, but we haven't even mentioned Ain't Talking About Love. This is one of the great riffs in rock history. It's a classic rock radio staple. Uh, interestingly, it was actually Van Halen's failed attempt at writing a punk song. It certainly is not that, but you might recall there's the part in that where they go, I, I, I! Mm -hmm. little, little allusion to punk. And, and really, the entire song, in punk-esque fashion, it's just two chords. It's just the same two chords over and over again, and it's carried by the band through textural variety as they sort of alter the riff and the playing. And it's really a masterclass in sort of musical simplicity. Most importantly of all, this track was sampled by two live crew in their immortal first wedding dance classic, The Fuck Shop. 
John, you a, a, a fan of the fuck shop? I have no idea what you're oh! talking about. <laughs> it's Two Live Crew at their fun. Do you, do you know Two Live Crew? I mean, I've heard of that name. Yeah, yeah. Well, important history. You, you can look that one up. Speaking of samples, the second side of this album opens with Jamie's Crying, which was rather brilliantly sampled by Tone Loke on the classic Wild Thing. I assume you know that one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Jamie's Crying was actually released as the album's third single. For whatever reason, it didn't chart. So, Jamie's Crying was the only song from this album that was written in the studio. It apparently took a whopping 20 minutes to come together. Again, a sign of a very good band. As good as the whole first half and all the singles are on this album, I actually think this is a pretty bottom-loaded album, and much of its best material is actually on side two. The second side features two of Van Halen's best and heaviest songs, Atomic Punk, and on vinyl and CD, the final track, On Fire. On Fire on the cassette version is actually reversed with Ice Cream Man. Mm. So that was kind of the version, I, the way I grew up with it, was closing with Ice Cream Man. These songs are really just like sort of straight ahead, kick-ass heavy metal. They, they make it obvious that Van Halen really is a heavy metal band, not, not anything else. I, I think people get confused because from maybe from 1984 through the Van Hagar era, Van Halen were considerably lighter, but these first albums, these classic Van Halen albums, these are these are heavy metal albums. I, I don't think it's possible really to argue against it, though I will allow all opinions because I'm, <clears throat> you know, gracious. gracious. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I wish people of the world could see... The graciousness. With the, the way you as well as the declaration. Sh- as well as the schwa de vivre. Jesus. <laughs> I'm a pretentious asshole, aren't I? <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, That's yeah. why we're friends. I know, it's so nice. So I've also neglected to mention two other great tunes. That's Feel Your Love, which is probably the best just pure pop song on the album. Really not a heavy metal track, but loads of fun. And the slinky and super cool, kind of dark little dreamer, which gives a sort of a preview of Van Halen's darkest album, uh, which is to come in 1981, The Incredible Fair Warning. It's got sort of a bleaker quality... I do want to say one more thing about Ice Cream Man. Ice Cream Man provides one of the album's best real postmodern moments. So that track starts off with David Lee Roth playing the acoustic guitar, which is kind of fun. And it's it just a fantastically sleazy vocal delivery, very only Roth could do. And then it becomes an, a pretty updated full band electric blues. Now everyone enters, it's all good and well. But the quintessential Van Halen postmodern moment is Eddie's guitar solo. It's just so sets up the expectation that this is just gonna be a traditional blues solo. It just feels like you're just waiting for that to happen. But instead, he opens up with these sort of combustible, shredding, neoclassical guitar licks that just come out of nowhere before then sort of allowing the traditional blues to come in. He's got this beautiful two-handed tapping element. It's just so unexpected. It's so cool. And to me, it's postmodern. This moment in this tune, perfectly for me, catches that seamless integration of past, present, and future that makes this one of the most important heavy metal albums of all time. John, any final thoughts on this incredible band and or album? This is one that I can I can comfortably say, if you haven't heard it and you're listening to this podcast, you should go check that out. It's a good one. It's good, right? Yeah. You think you'll continue to listen to this album? Probably not, but that's just because I don't listen to music. I think that's perfectly reasonable. I love Van Halen. I think that's probably fairly obvious. In some ways, I've always felt as though I ceded them to my older brother, 
who was a huge Van Halen fan. And, and they were sort of his band when we were kids. But I always loved them as well. And as an adult, I can freely say that there is almost no music of any kind that gives me more pleasure than those Roth-era Van Halen albums. So one last personal anecdote to leave you on. My own musical origin story is actually tied directly to Van Halen. I was 12 or 13 or so, and one afternoon I was listening rapturously to the 1984 album. Are you familiar with that album? Uh, Jump. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I know yeah. that one. Yeah, yeah. Panama. It's, okay. it's probably their, their most, right. the most famous of the Roth era albums. I was listening to it in, in the car with my parents because, like a dick, I always made my parents listen to my music when we were driving around. I, For whatever reason, I don't know why, when we arrived back home, I just felt myself overcome with a desire to see if I could go to our family piano and figure out how to play Eddie's amazing, lovely keyboard part on the song, I'll Wait. Great ballad from that album. So when we got home, I ran to our piano. I literally spent all day sort of plugging away, trying to figure out the song. By the end of the day, I was able to call my family in and I gave like a little Van Halen recital. And I was just hooked on piano from that point on. Before that, I played guitar, I sang. After that, piano really became my primary instrument. So Eddie Van Halen is my mentor, not as a guitarist, but rather as a pianist, as a, as a keyboard player particularly, which he did quite a lot of over the later years in Van Halen. So I dedicate this episode of Heavy Metal 101 to the memory of quite possibly our very greatest heavy metal artist, and certainly one of my own biggest musical influences, the extraordinary Edward Van Halen. Thanks for everything, Eddie, and rest in peace. So John, could you remind our listeners of how they might go about getting in touch with us? If you'd like to reach us, you can send us an email at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com. Also, a friendly note, if you listen to this podcast on a podcast dispensary that allows for the possibility of reviews or rankings, those are a fantastical way to get this podcast out there for more fine folks to peruse and enjoy. So any excellent reviews or words of wisdom or inane commentary. All that stuff is always most appreciated. Thanks for joining us. We will be back again soon with another profoundly revolutionary episode of the Heavy Metal 101 podcast. <laughs>